0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Mikhail Carter. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Dr. Diane Stewart about her book, Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage, published by Silpress. Press. Dr. Stewart is a professor of religion and African-American studies at Emory University, specializing in African heritage religious cultures in the Caribbean and the Americas. Welcome, Dr. Stewart. Thank you,
2: Mikhail. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: So let's get right into it. Um, So what inspired you to write this book?
2: Well, um, often in the academy, we say that our teaching should feed our scholarship as much as our scholarship should feed our teaching. And I would say it was the former. My teaching really felt fe- um, fed this scholarly project and. Um, Uh, back in 2004, I taught a course called Black Love for a number of reasons. As as you noted, I'm a professor of religion, trained theologian, Black liberation and womanist theologian. Um, You know, what am I doing teaching this course on Black love? Well, it was about all kinds of love. Um, So we were reading people like Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King Jr. and June Jordan and Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde. But I included a section on romantic love. And at that time, I was focusing on heterosexual coupling and marriage, and I was floored by what the stats were telling me. I was I was totally floored. I don't know why, given that I knew what the position of Black women are in our society vis-a-vis coupling, dating, marriage, but something about seeing it in Black and white, right, in sociological um, materials that have been out there for some time just reading it Maybe begin to look at the problem more deeply as something systemic and structural. Um, our public conversations about Black women and love or Black people in love are focused on self-help. They're focused at the personal level and the individual level. And I understand that because we feel the issue of romantic love and coupling very personally, right? It's That's how it operates. It operates at the personal. But when we step back and look at The wider um, issue as it impacts the the Black community nationally, we really do have to ask questions about systems and structures. Certainly the sociologists had done that work. Um, But their works were in sociological studies, right? Written for peers in the field, not written for public audiences. Some historians have begun to write great pieces on love and marriage during slavery or in the post-emancipation period. Um, But no one had pulled it all together and looked at it historically across an arc that brought the best and most current research to the question of what's happening with love and marriage for Black people, and I noticed, particularly a lot of men in the public arena instructing Black women on what they should do to make themselves more marketable in in, in the marriage market. And and I was thinking we're missing the boat, you know. Black women, you know, lose weight, um, take the bass out of your voice, stop being so bossy, um, you know, think like a man, act like a woman, you know, all of that. And I just said, we're missing the point here. And so I felt that I needed to write a statement, especially after teaching the Black Love course several times over. In returning to the materials and updating, I just felt I needed to write something that would take us from the slave ship to social media and, and show the structural underpinnings of what I end up calling Forbidden Black Love.
1: Thank you so much for that. And so, yes, so your book definitely um, does make a statement. And so, um, as you mentioned, um, you talk about, or actually introduce, forbidden black love as one of the most unrecognizable um, civil rights issues. So could you talk to the audience about what is forbidden black love? And then how is it, you know, an unrecognized civil rights issue?
2: Sure, again, we, we focus on marriage in very personal and individual ways, right? Among our friend groups and, oh, you know, I he proposed and now we're working on the wedding and what we focus on it. It's a very personal experience for us. No one wants to take that away. But if we were not clear that marriage is a civil right, all we have to look at, look at, is what the LGBTQ community has accomplished, right? Or, you know, hopefully, you know, continuing to accomplish over the past couple decades, right? It is a civil right. Marriage is a civil institution that is regulated by the government. In fact, Black people gained the right to marriage, um, were, were, were given the right to marry, In 1866, with the 1866 Civil Rights Act. So it was a right that we had to be given, because when you are enslaved and you're governed under the laws of property, right, property doesn't have, does not have rights to, to, to marry, right? So... So we have to be given that right. Um, And I think it's important to kind of remember that, right? To remember that we're dealing with a regulated civil institution. And what's really ironic, Mikkel, is that since the late 1880s, the Supreme Court has ruled on over a dozen cases that reaffirms marriage as a civil right, as important to the health and happiness of American citizens. And yet, and even with the case of Loving v. Virginia, for example, in 1967, where the Supreme Court made on, on, rendered unconstitutional any law, miscegenation laws across the nation, right? So we have Blacks um, having um, the right and Whites having the right to marry interracially and others, anyone in America, having the right to marry interracially. And yet we are now in a situation where Black women, millions of Black women, can't even marry intraracially as a result of structural and systemic problems. So it is a civil right. And I argue that this civil right is being denied from Black women and men, um, but Black women at much higher rates um, than um, 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 being denied this civil right um, in this country, right? I'm arguing that... It is is denial because of the historic, systemic, and structural issues that make marriage and coupling and love impossible, difficult, or delayed. That's really how I define it. Those systemic and structural issues that make love, coupling, and marriage impossible, difficult, or delayed for millions of Black people in this country.
1: Wonderful. And I think you um, did a great job at... um proving that argument and demonstrating um, how these like several structural factors have contributed also to like the decline of black marriages. And so um, also in your work, you reveal like how these issues can be traced back to slavery, as you mentioned. So can you talk about how slavery was the first battlefield, like you said, the first battlefield in the war on black marriage? And then also, can you um, give the audience, I guess, a glimpse into some of those disheartening stories that you uncovered?
2: Oh yes, so um, so I I talk about four major infrastructures of forbidden black love, and I start with the slave ship and slavery um, to um, analyze them. So the first is the separation of black marriages and families, and so because we know the average age of um, African females on slave ships was fifteen, most of these women and adolescent girls um, would have been either um, um, belonged to extensive family kin networks and been married themselves, right? And so oftentimes what we see are people being separated on slave ships, moving in different directions from their the, the rest of their family, especially spouses um, and their, their partners. So the separation begins there. It begins on the West Coast of, of Africa and on those slave ships. But then we certainly see it in America, um, in the institution of slavery, um, especially now... Before the ending of the international slave trade, um, you know, the outlaw of the slave trade, which really took effect in January 1808 for um, uh, the anglophone uh, world, um, we did have family separation. Definitely, we we saw family separation. However, after the outlawing of the um, international slave trade. We saw such an incredible boom in domestic slave trading, the interstate slave trade in the United States, that close to a million people were moved from places that they knew as home, deeper South and further West, as a result of trying to meet the growing needs of slavery in America. So as some historians have pointed out, like Tara Hunter, um, you know, while... Many couples actually did marry during slavery. Um, So many of those couples were torn apart. They could not have stable marriages in part because of the domestic slave trade. And, um, and 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 another thing that we must consider is in many cases, we also have couples who are working on different estates or different um, farms in different either in urban areas away from their spouses. In the north, this was true that the kind of the domestic landscape of 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 gendered labor um, often separated um, women from their spouses, um, from their male spouses. And the same thing could be true in the South. You you commonly could find spouses who lived on um, farms or plantations a mile or miles away from one another, or spouses who would be hired out even if they weren't sold um, for, um, you know, years upon years and could barely, if ever, even see their families, their spouses and their children. Um, so that, that's that's one. The another is racist and sexist jurisprudence, policies, and legal transactions. And I have a host of examples I can I can give for that. Um, but I'm gonna go on and name two others: sexual and reproductive violence and control, um, the violation of Black women and men, adolescent girls, and likely adolescent boys. We don't see a lot of data on that, but we're learning more and more about the sexual violation of, of African-descended males as well during slavery. Um And I know this is a lot of binary talk and I think the um, non-binary community has made us aware that not everybody does identify as male and female. And I, 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 I understand that. Um, So sometimes I should probably say persons, but it's really important to understand um, as Alexis um, Wells, Ogogombe says that the black woman's womb was a capital asset. Um, And so Her reproduction of a labor force, of an enslaved labor force, was important, and that led to massive um, um, rapes of Black women by their slave owners or their slave owners' children um, and other... whites of authority um, that might have been um, in the work environment of the forced reproduction of um, enslaved Black women and men and adolescents, the forced reproduction, having them um, copulate to produce um, what slave owners thought might be um, the most um, um, healthy and Powerful um, laborers um, that could help um, yield um, more, more, more produce, more capital um, for their industries and for their bottom line. Um, and then, as a result of the sexual and reproductive violence and control, we we have to talk about colorism and phenotypic stratification. That has been that that CPS, as I call it, um, has. As a significant impact on the Black dating and marriage market today. And we have to deal with the way colorism entered our communities during slavery, um, how mixed race children were often treated, were often privileged um, during slavery, and the impact of that on the Black communities internalized colorism and phenotypic stratification and how we um, value Um, persons based on skin color, how CPS impacts the psychology of beauty and desire in the Black community. That's another, I think, underlying structure that inhibits um, um, Black women's ability to marry um, and um, have um, healthy, loving relationships as well. So I can go into some more of those uh, more, but I just thought those are some of the ways that we We have seen um, forbidden Black love unfold during slavery, and then we see um, these um, phenomena repeating themselves in new ways, in different ways across the centuries.
1: For sure. And so you also speak about like the different policies um, as a way as well. And so you reveal how strategic and calculated factors such as welfare policies and mass incarceration cultivate um, the disappearance, lead to the disappearance of like many black men. And so can you speak about how factors such as these affect black marriages and black love today?
2: Yes, for sure. Um, there's a you know, it's really interesting Um um, when I got to the period of welfare in the book, because of course, you know, after slavery, I work on re- the reconstruction and post-reconstruction, right? Post-emancipation. And we're, we're dealing with widows of Civil War veterans who are being denied their pensions. i dealing with lynchings and I'm looking at lynchings from the perspective of love, marriage, and family, not just from the perspective of the horrific violence, but the trauma it causes and what the... Um, With the removal of a loved one who might have been a very important, um, um, provider for the family can do to a family both materially, psychologically and emotionally and we have to think about those who were likely lynched but disappeared and families never even knew what happened to their loved ones. So doing dealing with that and then talking about how um, many Blacks, millions of Blacks moved out of the South as a result, right? And so what happens as millions of Blacks are moving North to cities like Detroit and Chicago and um, and um, 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 Oh, my goodness. I wanted to say I wanted to say Missouri, but that's a state. (laughs) But moving north into these big cities, um, you know, um, and finding themselves in tenement housing, in um, these meager, menial, um, dilapidated um, kind of communities and neighborhoods, um, you know, they are struggling and suffering. And so when welfare um, benefits begin to open up to Black women because, of course, initially they were reserved for deserving white mothers um, and they were called mother's pensions pension programs in the 30s. But when they do open up and Black women begin to join in massive numbers in the late 50s, um, early 60s, That's when we begin to get these austere policies. Literally, men in the house, literally, there is a policy, men in the house, substitute father and suitable home. So black women and men's sexuality and um, um, domestic cultures were policed and punished by the welfare state. It's heartbreaking, um, the kinds of experiences that people have. And social demographers will will note that we don't even know the full percentage of Black men um, in, in this country because many of them are hiding, even till today even till today. So many Black men, we have situations where Black women or Black families were told, I'm I'm thinking of one where there were 12 children in the family, and they were told they could move out of the slums into these new housing projects. But the one stipulation was that the father would have to leave the state, leave the state. I mean, this was absolutely unbearable. Can you imagine and the family decided that in order to escape poverty this was the best possibility and i having grown up um seeing the movie claudine um which which kind of you know um publicized these policies in um in you know motion movie um And the motion movies um, for all of us to see in the 70s, um, I knew about these things. And I was thinking, oh, this might be just old hat and people are going to be like, yeah, we know all of this. But I find so many people. Who say, I had no idea. I had to go back to my grandmother, my great grandmother, and ask, do you know about this? And they're like, absolutely. Um, so they would the, the other thing that welfare departments will do across this nation, they would hire, they would actually work with social workers, they would have social workers who would come into people's apartments and come at any time of the night. Surprise people looking for um, two toothbrushes in the in in in, in the in the toothbrush stand, right? That uh, adult toothbrushes. Looking for men's slippers. Looking for shaving cream. They would open people's washing machines and open their stoves and um their ovens and and make sure that they're not storing men's things in there. Looking also for. Um, items that would seem impossible for someone in welfare to have. Oh, you have a new iron. You have a new television. Where did you get that? Maybe a boyfriend is also supporting you. So the idea was the patriarchal American state w- made sure after slavery that Black men would be responsible for Black families. We are not going to be responsible for indigent women and children and able disabled elders. You able-bodied Black men will be responsible for all of that. And so if we're giving you welfare and you're getting support from a man, we have to subtract what that support is from what we're giving you. So this common misperception, and this happens today, the common misperception that oh, welfare is free money. First of all, if 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 we look at someone like Johnny Tillman, who was a welfare activist, um, um, that I featured in chapter three, the whole chapter kind of, of folds around her story and the, the stories of some other women. Um, but if we look at Johnny Lee, she was working in the cotton fields of Arkansas since the age of seven. She worked as a laundress for over twenty years. She she had worked for. I believe almost a decade before she even went on welfare. So she had been paying into the system for of welfare herself and an illness. Um, uh, surgery led her to the, con- the led her to decide that she needed to monitor her children some more. They were adolescents now, and she couldn't work the way she did for the pennies that she was getting. Um, and so she began to accept welfare benefits. And it was as a result of that that she realized how abusive and traumatic this system was for millions of women. She didn't just work for Black women, even though Black women might have been disproportionately represented for millions of women across this country. And of course, especially Black women who were treated worse than white women. They got less money, less payouts than white women, even when they had more children, generally speaking. Even today, we know that studies have shown that in in states where a higher percentage of Black women relative to their population in the country um, is on welfare, those states receive lower payments lower welfare payments those those women from those states it's 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 fascinating and what they do is they try to collect the money from the men they actually make mothers today sue their husbands or their, their 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 the fathers of their children sue them, and so it sets up a divisive relationship between parents sue them in order to receive welfare benefits in some cases, mothers don't even want to put the father's name on the the birth certificate so they can say, I don't know who the father is I don't this is how black men often are disappearing in the numbers. Um, I don't know who the father is, where he is and so they can get some support from the father and still get the welfare benefits. Some people see that as cheating, but when we look at how low the benefits are, they're trying to get by. They're actually trying to beat a system that is beating them in many respects. And the beating really begins, um, Mikael, with the 10 plus generations of slave labor that was never paid. And so the lack of transgenerational wealth that families... That black families have to suffer with, and then find themselves at the mercy of the state with these austere sexist policies. Their misogyny noir and their misandry noir, because they also um, police and violate black men's sexual rights as well. I mean, during the '60s, when these policies were in full force. Basically, Black women couldn't have any sexual relationships. Black women couldn't have love relationships. If a male friend visited and a social worker happened to come by, it was assumed that this was the substitute father. I mean, it was just a horrendous situation. And as much as those payments helped Black families, the entire system that wrapped them up in Policing and um, violation and intrusion and embarrassment um, and punishment um, was just as um, was just as harmful as what it would have meant in many cases to not even have the benefits. And that's why some some mothers even went off welfare. Said, "I don't, I don't want this. I don't want you violating my privacy. I don't want this. I'll, I'll find a way."
1: Thank you, and it's very important and very heavy, um, heavy, heavy stuff that we're dealing with, and you know you're discussing right now. Um, and so earlier you also talked about um, uh, colorism, and so the next question is how have how has skin complexion and colorism and phenotypic stratification affected the black marriage market?
2: it really has and uh, and and i i hope that we can find more research um uh, to get a sense of what's happening now but still a pretty recent study from 2009 um showed that um black women who are fair complexion particularly between the ages of 20 and 29 who are fair complexion have a 50% chance of being married are twice as likely to be married when compared to dark complexion Black women. And they're 17% more likely to be married when compared with medium complexion Black women. Um, What we also know is that Black Black men marry twice as much outside of the race um, overall. And it's been hard to, to really gather this statistic, at least for me, I've done a lot to get it, but I, I think I got it into the very end of the book in, in a footnote or an endnote, I should say. Um, it, it appears that Black men um, in the middle, upper middle classes marry three times as much outside of the race um, than Black women. So that is a very interesting development. When you think about it, Um, perhaps many of them have more opportunities to socialize with non-Black women. And they are choosing oftentimes racially ambiguous women, um, non-Black women, white women. And so Black men are. um, But keep in mind, keep in mind, still, most Black men who marry are marrying Black women. I mean, a lot of times we we want to blow that number out of proportion. Most who marry are marrying Black women, and we do have to remember that. But colorism does affect um, Black male desire, Black male heterosexual desire. I know it's also rampant in the LGBTQ community because I've just been getting earfuls. At least anecdotally, I know it is major. I actually teach about that in the Black Love Course. Um, And so... We're dealing with a very, very painful issue. I mean, when you have, I have um, stories in my book in chapter five, where very, very dark skinned women, men are telling black women who are maybe their complexion or even maybe a little lighter. Oh, I don't date, I don't date dark skinned women. I only date light skinned women. Wow. Wow. What does that say about how you value yourself, perhaps your mother, perhaps women in your community? But the question is, you know, how do we get this way? And we know that it began in slavery. The truth is this society rewards fair skin. This society for far too long and these kinds of structures were replicated in our own communities um, with brown bag tests and other kinds of um, um, regulations and criteria that locked dark complexion people out of opportunities, and apart from the uh, the issue of how beauty is constructed and how desire um, might be related to how beauty is constructed, when they are more material and social rewards um, for people with lighter skin, people will more likely want to gravitate toward those rewards. So there are those kinds of um, implications as well, because of the kind of material and social rewards people are going to want to privilege um, the people who are most valued socially and who receive those material rewards.
1: Thank you for that. And so um, that goes into my next question. Um, How does class, uh, wealth, and financial stability, how does that also affect the Black marriage market?
2: It's very important. One of the things I learned, I tried to look for research on what Black men think about marriage. I mean, we, we like to talk about marriageability and, oh, these men are not marriageable, and we like to do that. But really, what is marriageable? So I did... I did look, and we don't have a lot. We don't have a lot of research on Black men in marriage. Um, Dr. Armand Perry has done some fabulous work also with um, Derek Brooms um, that I was able to uh, to cite um, that was really helpful. And in one of their studies, they showed that across hundreds of, of Black women and men, what they found was that Black men and women are equally looking for partners that can bring them into the middle class or lift them higher within it and when you think about the fact that for every dollar a white family has a black family has a dime uh, in wealth you know what we're trying to do is compensate for lack of wealth through salary um right we're trying to um marry use marriage as a way to compensate for our lack of wealth. And that's, that's never a sure fire way to, to to, uh, to to provide resources for oneself and one's family. Everybody needs wealth resources to fall back on. So think about this. The Black men making 30000 a year are looking for Black women making 55000 a year. And guess what? Those Black women are looking for Black men making 75000 80000 a year. And so, so we're missing each other in a sense, Right so that's also impacting the black marriage market because one of the things we, we we should know is that black people when we do marry we marry much later we marry much later than our white counterparts and even other um, racial ethnic counterparts in America and and so it's interesting Mikkel, I never knew that I would end up with this. Um, recommendation, I, I just had no idea that, that this is where I would end up when I started the research for the book. But the most important recommendation I have, I have three of them, is that we must turn a corner on inherited poverty and wealthlessness in our community if we're going to impact positively um, the rates of marriage, of healthy marriage among Black, Black couples or among Black people. We have to we have to deal with that. People do not feel ready, and this is true across American society, across race and ethnicity. People do not feel ready when they don't have um, education under their belt. Oftentimes, when they don't have uh, wealth building resources um, that are transgenerational or that they that they can rely on in emergency situations or to build their early lives, and the stressors that come with lack of wealth, lack of a decent income um absolutely erode the health and wellness of marriages and so black marriages are incredibly vulnerable as a result of black wealthlessness in america
1: thank you so much for that and so um you had a section in your in your book that I felt was extremely fascinating. Um, you talked about um, Western patriarchy's effect on the Black marriage market. And um, you kind of clear up some misconceptions about African patriarchy versus Western patriarchy. So could you talk a little bit more about this and how it impacts um, uh, Black love and Black marriage?
2: Yes. Well, the first thing I wanted to say was that We often um, seem to own, understand, and own um, patriarchal structures and traditions as our own. In fact, as Black people, in fact, we associate them with divine authority and sanction. And because we are often very faithful, religious people, Uh, Over 79% of Black people identified as Christian in some of our recent surveys. Um, So because of that, and we want to be faithful to God's word, and we often believe that patriarchal marital institution is also biblically revealed in God's word, Um, we really believe that this is our culture, it's our spiritual culture, it's our culture, but it is not. It actually is not. When we look at marital cultures in Africa and African patriarchy, first of all, African forms of patriarchy, which are structural, can be structural, and especially if we're trying to look at pre-colonial Africa, which is tough. It's kind of tough to separate things now that, you know, the intrusion of Islam, which came with a lot of patriarchal traditions and customs and also Christian colonialism, Euro-Western Christian colonialism, also Inculcated um, incredible, you know, kind of Western patriarchal structures in Africa. But one of the things we know is that African patriarchy was not um, unchallenged by matriarchal, matricentric, matrifocal institutions. It had to live in in tandem with, it had to compete with, it was in competition with these kinds of institutions. And that's why some social scientists Um, in, um, who do work on African family formation and social formation, social arrangements, argue that seniority is the principle for social organization, not gender, as it seems to be in Western societies. And this is why it's so important to know who's a boy and who's a girl in the West. It's not as important in many African societies to know that because girls are property and boys inherit property. Um, when we look at the history of Western thought, philosophy, laws, um, it's democracy, it, it, it you know it practices public and private domains. This is totally unheard of in Africa. We have women who were uh, captured into slavery um, from parts of Africa who were hundreds of miles from their homes because they were trading. Women have always been public and public figures and always held public offices in African society. So it's a very different reality, different, very different um, marital structures um, in, in Africa. What happened after slavery, African descendants had developed their own courtship arrangements and terms like sweethearting and taking up you know, sweethearting kind of the dating phase where everyone knows that this couple is getting to know one another, um, taking up. They also um, had their own notions for long distance marriages, sometimes calling them trial marriages. Very interesting. They're different marital and coupling arrangements. And after slavery, Missionary societies and institutions, educational institutions that were created for Blacks at the collegiate level, like institutions like Fisk, for example, um, um, and um, the federal government, right, through bureaucratic structures, inculcated Black people into marriage customs that were Euro-Western and patriarchal and did that. Through Christian educational materials, through um, labor laws, Black women who were working in regions where tenant farming was was practiced could not get contracts unless they were married. I mean, there were very few exceptions. And the idea of the, the ideal marriage was a dyad couple, a man and a woman, so monogamous man and a woman, Diet couple. And upon marriage, the woman would take the husband's names, which did not happen in Africa. Women didn't lose their names. Um, and the husband would be responsible for all finances for the household, all labor contracts. So, for example, even with the labor contracts, husbands were responsible for that. All labor contracts for for wives and children. All. Um, anything that had to do with property. This was called the doctrine of coverture in your Western um, marital um, laws, where the woman basically loses her identity. I mean, she becomes um, his helpmate. She becomes his wife and he handles um, and, um, um, is uh, has is the ultimate authority figure for any kind of contract related business, any kind of inheritance, uh, those kinds of issues. The man is responsible for them, has ultimate authority, etc. I mean, certainly there were workarounds, and eventually, even in the 19th century, America kind of you know American um, American wider American um, marriages began to abandon the doctrine of coverture, but. Black couples after slavery were socialized into this view that marriage is a patriarchal institution, that the man is the head of the household. That is a mute concept in Africa, totally un-African, this head of household concept. And therefore, as the patriarch, it is his responsibility to provide for his family. The wife is to be the ultimate domestic and take care of the children. Um and um, and this was seen as, I, as, as God's plan. It, um, scriptures were quoted and used to justify these kinds of marital and family arrangements. And this is totally Euro-Western. We don't see anything like this replicated in Africa. We don't see any such thing replicated in Africa until the imposition of modern colonial, and even still, it has not destroyed indigenous African forms of marriage and family formation. So the head of household concept, the patriarchal responsibility of men to be the breadwinners. So we have a lot of people today believing, well, he needs to have this amount, six figures. He needs to have this to take care of me and this, even if I work my salary supplemental. What is that? Where where did that come from? For Black people, as people with very little to no wealth, can we afford that? Can we even afford that? How reasonable do we think it is to expect that Black men, most Black men, can achieve that kind of financial independence in order to... um, to um, fulfill those criteria. So I, I ask my readers to take another look at where those criteria came from, where these this idealization of the patriarchal nuclear family came from, and to raise questions about the diverse family forms um, and coupling arrangements that we have had in our community from Africa, even to America. What happens, Mikael, is that they're most prominent among working class. I've always wondered if they might even be prominent among very, very upper class Black people, because sometimes you have to really have your kin group, and when you when you have a lot of wealth and money, um, you you, you got to be protect one one another within your own kin group. So I've always wondered if someone did a study amongst the richest Blacks if we would see similar family arrangements. But but by and large. By and large, they tend to exist among the working class and poor, these very um, um, expand, very flexible, I should say, family arrangements, um, and, and which are more Africana-oriented. And they've been demonized and pathologized since the Morning Report in, in 1965, and, and as the ideal family form is, is, is shown everywhere from television commercials to television shows to magazines to the church and other religious institutions— They've been pathologized, and but I think we need to revalue many of those family forms and think about what our community needs as a result of forbidden Black love.
1: For sure. Thank you so much. And so um, how do you propose we combat some of these um, concepts such as heads of households and for the Black community, but then also dilemmas, the as you, met, you mentioned in your book, absent strong fathers?
2: Yes, that's really interesting. First of all, it's a dilemma because it's a trope and it's a label. Absent strong fathers, it's a trope and it's a label that has been um, imposed on us. That first, the the strong father is a present father. And I don't disagree that being present, showing up for your children every day is critical. But um, what we have not often accounted for is... For example, and this was so widespread, and I'm, I'm so glad that I still see uh, feature stories on it. Um, in 2013, the CDC did a major study that indicated that Black men spend more quality time with their children than white and Latino men. And, and, and there was such shock from so many people. One of the things we we don't often take in, take into consideration is how present many fathers are in the lives of their children, especially from zero to five. Maybe these relationships don't often last, or maybe um, other things move, um, create alienation between fathers and their children, but um, but just because fathers are not in the household doesn't mean that they're not influencing their children's lives. So first of all, we, we need to look seriously at whether and how fathers... Could be and are influencing their children's lives, whether they're in the household and vice versa. If the father is the primary um, um, child um, care provider, you know, are the mothers in their children's lives? The second thing I'm I'm reminded of Carol Stack's um, study from the 1970s, where she she studied. a community. She called it a community in the ghetto. She didn't say where it was. It might have been Chicago. And what she showed is there was no concept of the single Black mother. It just didn't apply. I mean, certainly people would have wanted it to. I mean, you had young, you had adolescents giving birth at 16, 17, um, 18. You had that. You had that happening, 15. But they were never alone. They, the family networks, they had uncle coming through and auntie coming through and this friend who was godfather coming through. And there was these communities had full fledged networks of support and care for the children that were being born in these kin networks. The, the concept of single family was not relevant. The concept of head of the household really wasn't relevant. Oftentimes it, it, it was a mother, but oftentimes the fathers were involved with the children, even if they didn't share the same household or were not married. Fascinating. So I think one of the things we have to do is examine the different kinds of family formation that we have. We have had them since the end of slavery. And because they've been pathologized, we've tried to imitate the nuclear patriarchal family. And and, and even, you know, white America is realizing that that was a mistake, the nuclear patriarchal family. They're realizing that when you isolate individuals, when you isolate couples, and 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 basically say, you've got to do this alone, nobody wins. Nobody wins. So larger kin networks, valuing those networks of support that we have developed as Black people, the, you know, play cousins and the auntie cousins and the, you know all of these people who might not even be blood relatives but they are relatives that matters and i think it's time to reinvest in those kind that kind of relationship building and asserting Um, those relationships for what they can do in terms of supporting adults to support one another and the children in our lives. Um, I think that's important. First value the diversity of those kin networks, investigate them, um, um, look at how well they're working for us. But again, again, another thing that we have to be attentive to is we, and I say this in the book, we can't have kin wealth without financial wealth, without, without wealth resources to back up that kin wealth. Because what happens as we're dealing with so many first gens going off to college and getting master's degrees and other professional degrees, what happens is what social scientists call wealth spread. And that one person has to hold up the whole kin group. And that is extremely stressful. So we celebrate kin wealth for what it can do for us in terms of support, not just material resources, but also inner, internal resources, emotional, psychological um, resources, but also that must be paired with financial wealth. We can't have kin groups without the financial wealth backing that it needs. And people of African descent in this country are, um, deserve um, reparations for the wealth that was stolen from them so that um, they can build wealth today for their communities and families.
1: Thank you so much for that, Dr. Stewart. Um, And so tell us, why is it important to discuss Black marriage and Black love? And ultimately, what do you hope readers gain, especially Black women and Black men, after reading your book?
2: Yes. One, I want to change a national conversation about love, coupling, and marriage in our community. I want us to develop more empathy for one another as Black women and men. I want us to give some attention, not as much or not immediately, not first, to what we do, we have done, particularly the harmful and toxic things that we have done, not first, but I want us to first give attention to what has been done to us, to the harmful and toxic things that have been done to us. Some people might ask, you know, are you saying that we're not responsible for our actions, for what we do, for when we don't show up for our children, for when we abandon our families? Absolutely we are. We absolutely are. There's no doubt about it. But if we only try to approach this topic from a personal self-help, a personal responsibility perspective, we will never address it at the numbers that we need it to be addressed. Do you think what, we're, what, we, what we don't often acknowledge is that those kinds of behaviors are often symptoms of grave structural and systemic problems. They are Black people and, or people in general, but in this case, we're talking about Black people trying to cope in unhealthy ways with being under-resourced overpoliced, undereducated, under hired um, for in, in terms of gainful employment, um, trying to cope in often the ways that are accessible to them, unhealthy, um, maybe ways that have been criminalized by our system, ways that create alienation with be, between them and their families. I just want to know if black folks had the advantages that white folks had from land grants right after slavery, with Abraham Lincoln's land grants that were given to white immigrants coming into this country, all the way to the GI Bill that created a booming middle class and upper class in terms of wealth for the average white American, all the way to policies that favor um, 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 white families in terms of tax policies and, and and regulations. If Black people had those kinds of advantages along the way, didn't have to deal with redlining, didn't have to deal with um, racist mortgage lending and predatory mortgage lending, if Black people just had all of the white privileges that are courted, do we think we would be seeing So-called absent fathers, we would be seeing at the levels that we see it. That's why I'm interested in systemic and structural approaches, because I think we will see less of that. Every community, every people across the world have depressed people, have people who just don't, you know, want to be motivated, can't be motivated for whatever. Every community has that. There's no community that doesn't have that. Those people need to work on themselves, too. You know, hopefully they can get the resources to do it. But what we're often seeing are symptoms of structural problems where people out of desperation and lack of access to the resources they need turn to antisocial or unhelpful or toxic modes of navigating a treacherous and traumatic Experience of being involuntarily present in America as descendants of enslaved people. Um, that's what that that that's what we that's what we really see. And I want us to spend some time dealing with that and taking that seriously, and not just looking at the romantic aspects of love and marriage. And saying to ourselves, what happens when we put Black love, marriage, and family formation at the center of every policy decision, at the center of every issue that we're fighting for? We're going to address everything. We're going to address maternal health and mortality rates, health disparities, education, incarceration. We're going to address everything when we put it at the center. And I want us to have those conversations for for just a moment rather than, uh uh-uh, he did this and she did that and you need to do this and you need to do... I just want to put that on pause for one second and realize that things have been done to us that have been unfair, that have been structural, and that have deeply impacted our ability to find healthy sustaining love and coupling and, and 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 marriage right not everybody wants to marry but for those who do and marriage and and that's how i want to change the conversation to not to not to depress people but to say if we don't look at what the problems are how can we change it How can we change it? So that's what I want us to do, to take seriously these four pillars of forbidden Black love and and others that we identify and come up with agendas. For those who are activists, what are you going to do in your corner of the world? For those who are educators, how are we going to bring these matters to the fore so that people understand them and can digest them and and can make a difference, right? I've had many white readers, Asian readers, readers who are not Black, just be totally floored and like, Oh my goodness. I I have learned so much. I never understood. I never knew. This is incredible. Let me let me just um you know end with this because I, I, I wanted to share just a few stats, and I'm not just the stats of who who was married, um, you know, at time of survey. And by the way, it was 29.4 married in 2010, and the 2020 census is 28.5 Black women, you know, so married at time of survey. So we're not in a better position, right? And in, in in 2019, what the survey says is 28.5. But I, there are some census data that emerge in um in in these and euro census us census bureau reports that i've been paying attention to as well that that continue to um, kind of look at what happens in between the decennial census so for for 2016 and this is what concerns me for 2016 and you know 25 to 29 you're not, you're not as worried but in 2006 70.2 um percent um, of, of, of Black women had never been married between 25 and 29. By 2016, it's 79 percent. You know, and 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 when let's look at the years where Black women, okay, finally have like this last opportunity if they want to have children with their spouses. Let's look at 35 to 44. But 2006, 36.9 had never been married. So this has nothing to do with the women who are married at time of survey. We, we had never been. And remember, Black women get divorced at a much higher rate as well. So this is not telling us how many people are married. How many have never been married? 36.9. So the other 73 percent, just because they had been married doesn't mean that 50 percent of them are not divorced and unmarried right now. Do you see where I'm going with that? Okay, so 36.9. But by 2016, it's 44.1 who have never been married a a decade later. The the percentages just keep going up. And when we compare that, for example, to white women, it's 12.8 percent. In 2006, and only 16.8, compared to our 44.1 between the ages of 35 and 44 who'd never been married. Look at Asian women; it's 11.8 in 2006 and 13. They're even doing better than white women, right? So we are—we stand out way, way beyond. For Latinos, they're still doing much better than us. They're twice as much. They're 16 percent who had never been married. Whereas we're 369 in that age group and 22% who had never been married in 2016. And we're at 44.1%. So it's, it, it is an issue um, for the Black women who want to be married. And I know that that is millions of us, right? Millions of Black women want to be and want to be married to Black men. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, people should... I think, you know, marry whom they love. There's no doubt about it. But telling Black women to marry and date out of the race does not solve the ultimate problem and does not solve the problem for Black women who want to be married to Black men.
1: Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for writing this um, powerful, um, though heavy, but definitely powerful work. Um, And so that brings us to my last question. What are you working on next?
2: Well, um, several books, because I'm a scholar scholar in that way. I love researching and writing. But in relation to this topic, when I wrote this book, and it was really hard to grapple with all of the pain and the trauma that I had to, I had to make um, visible um, for us to understand the structural violence that we had um, we had um, un- experienced um, with regard to our um, l- um, marriage and family and coupling relationships. I said, I will never write another book like this. I just want to write this for my community, especially, to change a conversation, to open it up, to, to, to see if we can really impact Um, the structures and systems through activism and having Black people put love and marriage and coupling on the civil rights agenda. We're excellent at civil rights, right? But what has happened is I've learned more things about what's happening now. Black women's divestment movement from Black men, okay? You all don't want to marry us? Fine. We're going to divest from you. I am curious. I really want to talk about that divestment movement. All of the kind of ads and television commercials that are promoting this interracial image, image of interracial um, relationships, especially Black-white relationships, right? Especially Black man, white woman. Promoting that everywhere. I mean, if you you look at these commercials, you would think 80% of Black couples are married to a white person and maybe 10% to an Asian person. Um, and, And that is absolutely not the case. No matter what we say about Black men marrying twice as much outside the race or three times as much, most Black men still marry Black women period. And we're not seeing that. Um, I want to talk about those issues. I want to talk about family formation a little bit more. I want to delve more into the diverse, flexible family um, 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 uh, forms and raise questions about patriarchal marriage. I feel that that we need to deal with, especially the biblical foundations of it. This is where my expertise can come in. I mean, I'm not a biblical scholar, but as a scholar of religion and theology, I really want to Open up what I started in Chapter Five, and and really take people, situate my readers in that first century, first century empire, where the Christians are dealing with empirical formation, right, and dealing with the pressures of what it means to live under empire and try to escape notice. So that you won't be fed to wild animals. Right. This is not a dominant religion. This is a marginal religion. And they're trying to survive in this culture by not being seen. And we now are taking what they were doing to try to survive as our blueprint for how we need to live today. Has nothing to do. They weren't writing a manual for all time. So I really wanna walk my readers through that and help them understand what was going on in their relationship with their God, right? Um, and in their social um, experiment with, or experience, I should say, with um, empire. And and so I want to take that on. People are asking for more with re, with re, regard to that, um, and a, a couple a couple other issues I've been hearing about the passport bros as well. Um, issues about what it means for Black men now to say we're going overseas, we're looking for Brazilian women and Thai, uh, women from Thailand and other Caribbean women because African American women or Black women generally, right? When I say Caribbean, I'm thinking like Dominican, uh, Puerto Rican. Etcetera, um, African American women um, generally um, are too harsh, are not um, desirable, are are um, not going to be the, the most um, compliant wives, etc., etc. So I want to I want to kind of uh, deal with some more contemporary issues that my readers are asking for, and some of these issues around patriarchal marriage um, in a black love too. Um, I don't know what it will be called yet, but my goal is to have the book finished um, by the end of 2024.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. And I look forward to reading Black Love, too, uh, for sure. (laughs) Um, Yes, thank you so much for um, agreeing to be on the podcast and speaking with us today about your book, Black Women, Black Love. Um, Definitely recommend to audiences. Thank you again, Dr. Stewart.
2: Thank you, Mikael. It was a pleasure to be with you.